I love this place. I really, really do. I was here in October, and it just feels of earnest, doesn't it? I mean, just the history that has gone on in this place. So I'm quite honored to be called back, and thank you. Thank you all very much. Now, many CSLs around the world start with the very first Sunday looking at the Science of Mind textbook and going through the first chapter with the second week in January, the second, third, and fourth. So I'm going to stick to that tradition and talk about the very first chapter in the Science of Mind textbook, which is called... I knew you folks had it down. But you know, how many times have all of us heard that message of the thing itself? And if we've been in these centers a time or two, a, a, a few years, uh, like Connie, I think she said 40 years, Connie's been with us. So I decided to take a little bit of a, 50 is it? Is it 50? My goodness. That's pretty darn cool. That's very cool. There was a book in my ministerial school Ernest Holmes, His Life and Times. It is his biography. And it's written by Fenwick Holmes, his brother. So I don't know if any of you... Have, you, have any of you read this book before? Yeah, I had never even heard of it. My sponsoring minister had never even heard of it. Not only is it his biography, there's pictures in it. So I'll leave it up here for some of you to see. Um, that's the Holmes family. Isn't that cool? So we're going to start today with a little bit of information about Ernest Holmes, the founder of this wonderful, wonderful teaching. And I know that people in this community are very well versed in Ernest's life, in his teachings, in the science of mind principle. So we're going to start with some trivia. <laughs> what year was he born? Shout it out. What was it? You're close, not quite. Next one. Huh? 1887. Anybody guess the month? January 21st. He was an Aquarius, right on the cusp of Capricorn and Aquarius. Anyone know how many siblings Ernest had? Mother Holmes, how many children? Yeah, he was the ninth son. Mother Holmes had all boys. Anybody raise boys in this, in this room? Think of doing it nine times over. Nine boys in the household. That woman lived a divine life. She had to get some of that inspiration going, right? You don't raise nine boys, and they're what they called stepchildren. Almost every single year she was having a baby. So Fenwick talks a lot about growing up with Ernest, that Ernest was known as the proverbial question mark, that he just, he, he was never satisfied. He wanted to constantly know why. Why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Why am I here in this world? And at the time, 1887, there was a lot going on in our world of people exploring different things. I was chatting with someone right before service about the transcendentalist movement going on. Einstein was out there with his theory of relativity. And yet, with all this innovation going on, there was also a deep, 
deep strength of living by the Bible, living by the church's dictates. And when you stepped outside of that, it was not okay. It was not okay. And Ernest Holmes' father was a minister. Now, fortunately for Ernest, his father believed in expanding the views, in, in understanding what the world was all about. So when people were coming out to his family and to his children saying, you can't say that, it's not in the Bible, his father defended his children and said, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk you hear about, you know, the devil's going to get you if you do this, that, or the other. And he goes, you just stay true to yourself, and you are living a good life. And Ernest took that to heart. And yet, having that much pressure put on him, it's hard to be a really innovative thinker when people are out there saying, no, that's not right. That's not the way we believe. We have a different philosophy. So it held Ernest down significantly until, and I know some of you know this one, until he found, who did he find? Emerson. Emerson. And Ernest said Emerson was like drinking water. It was just that easy, that natural. And look at this, there's nothing. There's nothing to it. And we are reading a little bit of this on the drive up here, a drive down here from um, San Jose. Sentence by sentence can be hours of contemplation. The oversoul. This was the first time that Ernest got permission in a formal way of being to think outside the box, to not stay in only the biblical teachings, to look at some of the great philosophers. You know, Ernest is also often called the great synthesizer, as he took a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here, and he wrapped them all up into a way of belief that he then wrote the Science of Mind um, book from. Now, when Ernest was about 20 is when he discovered Emerson. And at that point in time, he started the gem of the idea that would be the Science of Mind textbook. Some more trivia for you. Do you know what year Science of Mind textbook was first written? 27, very close. And it was revised, so it stayed in that form for about 10 years, there's a hint. <laughs> when was the second revision, or first revision actually, the revised text that we use today? What year was it published? 38. Close. I said close. So yeah, there was about 10 years it went on. And that's what we use today. This is a science of mind textbook that we use today. When Ernest was reading Emerson, Emerson talks about the oversoul. So rather than using this word God, or even some of the, you know, the, the common ways of looking at things, you know, spirit, the beloved, he looked at the oversoul. And what this did for Ernest is that it opened his mind to other words to use. 
and he came up with the thing itself. In the, in the biography, Fenwick talks that Ernest began to get new names for God. He saw God in ontological terms as first cause, being, impersonal principle, spirit. Those words resonate with people a lot more than those three simple words of God. So Ernest started looking at first cause. Now one of the great principles of science of mind is cause and effect. You know, we hear it all the time that I have done this and now this result is going to happen. But when you start looking backwards, you know, well, if I hadn't done this and this wouldn't have happened and then I did this and then I did this, you're going to get to a place where it's the very first cause. Before the Big Bang, before Adam and Eve, there was first cause. And what is first God but God? Spirit, the divine. Ernest Holmes, in his Science of Mind book, takes a moment to actually define this term that he's using, the thing itself. Because the study of the science of mind is a study of first cause, of spirit, mind, that invisible essence the power back of creation, the thing itself. And doesn't just that word, that phrase, the thing itself, opens the mind, doesn't it? When we hear any other terms, there's societal definitions of all these words. The thing itself doesn't have that. The thing itself just, the thing itself. It's when you can't describe it with words. Because all words, the minute we say God, Jehovah, Allah, any, the prophet, any of these words, we have limited this beautiful, beautiful, infinite power. This is God. Well, then this is not. This is spirit. Well, this is not. So when you say the thing itself, it keeps things wide open. Now, was another beautiful, beautiful part of Elm Ernest that he wanted to keep things open at the top. Let us always expand our consciousness. Let's always grow bigger than we are today. Let's imagine a world that works for everyone. This is why our global heart vision is so near and dear to so many people, because it is the epitome of what we can become. In Living the Science of Mind, so this is kind of a corollary book to the science of mind, Living the Science of Mind, it takes a lot of the chapters that are in the science of mind and condenses them into very easy to understand views. In Living the Science of Mind, Ernest talks a little bit about this whole languaging aspect of using a term for this spirit, the thing itself, for this essence goes first off to talk about true religion, true science, and true common sense should go hand in hand, together with the subtle something, which is the essence of feeling, that which is beyond words. 
Words limit us. Words put in it, this is this, that is that. The thing itself. Just makes sense, doesn't it? Another thing with, with mind, you know, if you, if you recall the definition that Ernest had, he used mind in the same connotation as the thing itself, as spirit, as God, as this eternal essence, the power behind creation, mind. So science of mind is science of God, isn't it? The whole Science of Mind book is a study of what this essential element is in our lives, in our world, that is the power behind creation, the thing itself. Now, In my Christian science background, we would say there is no spot where God is not. Same essence, that there's something that exists in this world that is equally everywhere present, and that I know it and feel it deep inside my own system. But can I prove it? The science part says it needs to be proved. There needs to be some empirical evidence. Well, when we look at science, science often makes its things, its, its decisions, its philosophies, its theories based on cause and effect. They cannot see the cause. They cannot see a principle but they can measure the effect. Has anybody here seen gravity? We know what happens if I were to drop the book, wouldn't I? It hit the floor. We know that. Every single time I drop a book, it's going to hit the floor. We know the principle of gravity can be proven by its results. Astronomers have the same type of thing going on. They can't see a lot of planets especially when they go deep, deep into the deep galaxy and looking at areas outside of what we have in the Milky Way. What they see, though, are the stars. And that bright, bright light of the stars makes the planets themselves unable to be seen by the equipment that we have today. But what happens is that the light gets changed when there's a body. So the light is what they measure. Is it going straight into our equipment or is it getting blocked by a planetary body? Therefore, they know from the effect that there is a planet out there. So science works very strongly on the fact that principles are not visible. Principles cannot be seen, touched, felt the scientific way but the results can be. And we accept that in science. We know that. That has no, no issues whatsoever. When we move into spiritual principles, that gets to be a little more difficult, doesn't it? That's a harder reach. Cause and effect, one of the big spiritual principles. Am I really going to have to pay the price of the things that I did in my life? Well, man, that's not fair. I don't want that. I'd much rather blame it on someone. Devil made me do it, right? It's not my fault. But it is, isn't it? Because when we take ownership, we also then have the ability to change. Change your thinking, change your life. But it begs the question then of why do somebody get better results than others do? 
And Ernest actually talked about that. He had gone in when he was first describing the science, the spiritual mind treatment, you know, a beautiful five-step process. With step number one, identify that divine energy. Step two, unite with it. I'm part of this. If God's equally everywhere present, then right here inside me is just as much power as anywhere else in the universe. Then I'll make my statement of truth. I give a good talk today. That was my, my, my treatment this morning. I am a channel to the divine energy and the words that come from my mouth is that divine message that needs to be heard by the people in this room. There's my affirmation. And of course it's going to happen. How could it not? It's a spiritual principle. So I immediately say thank you. I don't wait. I don't guess. I don't worry. I just say thank you. And then I just let it go. Just plain old let it go. So how come those five steps work for some people and they don't work for others? Now, are they really not working? Because another of the principles that Ernest has come up with is the principle of correspondence. What we get is exactly what we believe we will get. So if we don't have the corresponding belief, then it's not going to happen. And that then needs to be what our treatment is about, is let me expand my consciousness. Let me feel a deeper connection to spirit. Let me be more than I am tomorrow than I was today. And as I do that, as my consciousness grows and expands to become more, I receive more. And I have this beautiful reciprocity going on in life. The bigger I am, the more I have. The bigger I have, the more I am. And I just continue in this beautiful circle of life. So when we know that what we are receiving is corresponding to our beliefs, Ernest addresses the fact that some people's treatment gets results in a different way than others. And there's no judgment to it. It's not better or worse. It's not, you didn't pray well enough. You know, you're not a good enough practitioner. None of that. None of that. Because we are all divine. Equally all. But in Science of Mind, Ernest says, some people have been healed through prayer, while others have not. The answer is not that God has responded to some and not others, but that some have responded to God more than others. Taking control of the situation, it's all on me. It's an inside job. This is why we say change your thinking, change your... Exactly right. Exactly right. When we are able to actually move our thoughts into that deeper part of who we really are, we change our life. Now, the Science of Mind magazine that Denise was starting with uh, was talking about Dr. Petra Wells and an article she had written that was how, learning how to practice the principles. And as Denise started with the article, she's saying that Dr. Petra is saying how her own life was able to be theoretical, that she knew the five steps and she knew how to meditate and she knew how to come to service and she 
practiced these at the theoretical level, but did she actually embody them in her own personal life? Now back to the words that we speak and how the thing itself is so powerful because of the words that are being used on it. Dr. Petra talks in this article of how many of us have heard some of these phrases, choose your words wisely. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything. Speak only what is true, kind, and necessary. What Dr. Petra looked at was the words that she used in everyday talk, not necessarily the prayers that we hear. And I would surmise that there are some people in this room, myself included, who have said things that I didn't want to happen. Oh, man, I hope it doesn't rain while I'm on vacation. It's like, oh, everybody around me has got a cold. I hope I don't get this cold. Okay, Would I say those words in a treatment? Well, of course I wouldn't. Of course I wouldn't. And yet, it's that spoken word that has power no matter what the environment is. Just recently, um, well, let me finish. So what, what Dr. Petra talks about in this article is how her practice has changed. She goes, my practice became to speak only something that I would be willing to affirm or say in my spiritual mind treatment. I practice the adage, if you can't say something kind, don't say something at all. Only she changed it. If I can't say something that is in alignment with spiritual truth, don't say anything at all. This really came up for me over the holidays. I was very, very fortunate to take a trip uh, to Amsterdam. Fun trip. And then we picked up a river cruise that went down the German River Rhine. Yes, it was a very, very cool vacation. It was one of those like lifetime moments. But as we did three days in Amsterdam and we played around, had a lot of fun, did a lot of museums, and then got to the ship and they asked for the passport. They were not in my purse. Yeah. Oh my God, right? Everyone, oh my God, oh my God. And I panicked. And my husband is just Mr. Stoic himself. He just calm down, Kathy, calm down. I, said, I can't calm down. I don't have the passport. It's my job to hold on to the passport. I don't got them. I don't know what we're going to do. You know, and, and all my teachings just went right out the window. I'm in Amsterdam without my friggin' passport. What am I going to do? And eventually, you know, I, I kind of settled down, and, and there happened to be a taxi driver owner who was in the lobby area when I'm checking in, and he goes, you know, ma'am, I own a taxi cab. Um, if you think you left it in the cab, I can call them. And I said, I might have. I don't know. Oh, you know. <laughs> I'm in pure panic. I don't know what I'm thinking. Um, but the minute he said that, it was, it was uh, like a flash of light came on. I said, of course. I had a travel bag, a little um, pouch that I, kept, that I kept all my important documents in. I showed the cab driver the address of the port because I couldn't pronounce it. It was in Danish. And I said, I guess when I took that out, I put the pouch on the back seat of the cab and proceeded to get out of the cab. It's as good as theory as any. You know, at least it's a great place to start. So they finally, they called the cab who drove back to the port. <laughs> Thank God. Goodness, I tipped him well when he dropped us off. <laughs> 
And sure enough, our passports were in the back in the little pouch and everything proceeded fine. But as an example, you know, I mean, I'm a minister. I've gone to five years of school to get to this place. I've been 20 years, as you heard Denise say, 20 years thinking about it before I actually went there. And yet in the midst of it, did I go to spirit? Not right away. I got there. You know, I mean, that's the good news, is that I quickly got there that said, with God, all things are possible. I know the universe is protecting me. I know that everything happens in the way that it's meant to happen. And even though I may not get it right away, it's happening the way it's meant to be. Ernest Holmes talks about this whole trusting of the universe. On page 33 of Science of the Mind, when we learn to trust the universe, we'll be happy, prosperous, and well. We must learn to come under that divine government and accept the fact that nature's table is ever filled. Never was there a cosmic famine. The finite alone has wrought and suffered. The infinite lies stretched in smiling repose. We may stumble, but always there is that eternal voice forever whispering in our ear, that thing which causes the eternal quest, that thing which forever sings and sings, the thing itself. Thank you.